So this is week two of our two-week sermon mini-series called uh, Community, How Connecting Can Change Your Life. And we're talking about what it means to to be the community of the church. Uh, Our guide for these two weeks is the Apostle Paul, specifically the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, and uh, more specifically the Apostle Paul in the 12th chapter of his letter to the Romans, which is one of my very favorite passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Uh, We're going to get to that reading shortly, but first a little bit of of context. In Romans, Paul was writing to a community uh, in which there was some some tension. And specifically in his case, that tension was between Christians who had converted from uh, Judaism uh, and those who had not been raised in a monotheistic tradition at all. So as you might imagine, these were two very, very different groups with very different religious backgrounds. And as it turns out, these were groups who were uh, sometimes suspicious of each other, sometimes jealous of each other, sometimes in open conflict with each other. Um, So the the community of the church in Rome was a bit complicated. And of course, they were making their way in a world in which the vast majority of the people around them were not Christian. The vast majority of Romans uh, believed very differently, and um, they weren't quite sure what to make of this young Christian movement. And so the world outside of this sometimes conflicted church uh, was sometimes openly hostile to the church in Rome, and that was you know, to varying degrees throughout that first century. All of which is to say, the context of the church in Rome in the first century was was pretty challenging. It was itself diverse in a world that was not predominantly Christian. And they were, they were trying to live together um, while at the same time trying to reach new people. And so the details of uh, that church in Rome in the first century are a little different than our 21st century church here in America, but not, not entirely dissimilar to some of the challenges that we face today. So last week we talked about the fact that tens of millions of Americans do not have a church home. Tens of millions of Americans do not have a church home. Uh, These days it is not a foregone conclusion that everyone around us is looking for a church. Now we know that everyone needs a church home, whether they realize it or not. Our job is to reach them uh, because what we offer is a, a community that everyone needs. That's what we talked about last week. The question before us today as we wrap up this little community series um, is what kind of community are we called to be? Uh, One of the most pressing, perhaps the most pressing spiritual and existential crisis of our age is the crisis of uh, loneliness. Um, I don't think it's overstating the case to use the word crisis. I I wrote about this week before last in my weekly column that the statistics on this subject are sadly consistent and they they detail a problem that uh, truly does cut across age demographics. So, for example, the University of Michigan this year in their national poll on healthy aging discovered that 34% of uh, 50 to 80 year olds uh, reported feeling isolated from others, so more than a third, and that a third uh, felt a lack of companionship. So that's the 50 to 80 group. 
Over the summer, the American Psychological Association, so a different report, a different survey, reported that 17% of U.S. adults and 24% of young adults struggle with loneliness. And then Harvard did a study of Gen Z last December that found that over a third of Americans in the 18 to 25 range, so just beginning uh, their young lives, uh, adult lives anyway, reported feeling either uh, frequently, almost all the time, or all the time lonely, a third of even that young demographic. And the statistics about the impact of loneliness are also consistent and alarming. In terms of our mortality, uh, the effect of chronic loneliness and isolation is comparable to well-known risk factors like uh, cigarette smoking. And in fact, loneliness can increase the risk of early mortality by 26%. Loneliness can negatively impact both mental health and self-esteem. Loneliness puts older adults at greater risk of, of cognitive decline and dementia. I mean, the bottom line is that loneliness and isolation for every age group uh, are bad in every way, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Now, what we know is that, that the community of the church has the power, has the possibility to provide us with the connection that we need. The question before us today is what kind of community has the power to do that? Because not all communities are created equally, as, as you know. Some are better at it than others. Well, the Apostle Paul gives us some guidance in his letter to the Romans. Uh, in my Wesley Study Bible, it's not the one I preach from, it's the one I read from kind of in a devotional way. Our passage for today is under the heading, Marks of a True Christian. And so, uh, as we read, I think it'd be good for us to um, kind of ask ourselves how high our marks would be in these areas. So it's Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 9 to 13 now, and we'll come back and read the rest later. And you'll see, um, so he's talking about the community of the church, and every verse, it seems, contains at least two, sometimes three separate commandments, like a list of things that the church needs to be doing, guidelines, maybe is a better word than commandments. So listen, friends, for the Word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the Apostle Paul. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, uh, in talking about this great spiritual and existential crisis of our age, I think it's important to, to draw a distinction here. Um, solitude and, and loneliness are not the same thing. Solitude can be very healthy. Um, all of us need some time to ourselves varies based on our personality, but we all need it. Uh, for example, I am pretty extroverted on Sunday mornings. Um, I love being with my church peeps. I love greeting people in the hallways before and after church. Uh, if you know me at all, you know that I am inclined to hug. I'm a hugger, as they say. Uh, and it's a habit that my wife, Whitney, gives me a hard time about. Um, she tells me 
I should not assume that everyone wants to hug me. <laughs> and it's a, it's a fair point. Uh, not everyone likes that invasion of personal space. And it's, listen, it is awkwardly obvious when I try to hug someone who is not a hugger. Like I go in for the hug and they're like, like kind of like that right there. Uh, we have a couple of those on staff. I won't name, name names. So this photo is from the Washington, a Washington Post opinion piece uh, called The Case Against Hugs, which has the subtitle, Don't Touch Me. <laughs> All right, to, to each his or her own. But my point is, I love Sunday mornings here at the church. I love all that wonderful human interaction with brothers and sisters in Christ, with people in the church that I love. I, it's one of my favorite times of the week. But then I do run out of words, <laughs> and a lot of pastors are like this. So this usually for me comes very shortly after the 11 a.m. service. Each Sunday, what I like to do is to go home and close the blinds and head to the couch with my wife and kids and watch football or whatever else is on TV, preferably in silence. <laughs> I also love my quiet reading time, and I love to, to get away for a couple of days, a couple of times a year all by myself to rest and rejuvenate because solitude is healthy when we're choosing it. Um, and for me, at least, it's, it's necessary. Loneliness, though, is something else entirely. There's a, an organization called the Campaign to End Loneliness. Their website offers a, a wealth of information about this subject. And they actually identify uh, three types of loneliness that are especially problematic and uh, types of loneliness that, once they become chronic, can lead to those host of other problems that I talked about earlier. So there's uh, emotional loneliness, which is the absence of meaningful relationships, and there's social loneliness, which is a perceived deficit in the quality of social connections. And then there's existential loneliness, which is a feeling of kind of fundamental separateness from others and the wider world. And the thing is, as the body of Christ, uh, we are called to offer to each other the emotional and social and existential connections that directly address these fundamental needs. Once again, our, our question for today is what type of community offers these connections? That's part of what Paul is addressing in the 12th chapter to the Romans, which gives us a beautiful vision for what the church can and should be. And it's really important to remember that he is writing to a community that is not getting along. He is writing to a group that's broken into at least two different, uh, community that's broken into at least two different groups who don't see eye to eye on a fair number of issues. And so he gives them a, a vision for what the church should be. Imagine a place where um, everyone is welcomed and everyone's welcomed without judgment. And imagine a place where, where every newcomer feels as though they are needed and loved. Imagine a place where we accept everyone unconditionally for who they are rather than who we think they should be. Imagine a place with no barriers to entry. A place where you're truly welcome even on your toughest day because if you're not welcome on your toughest day in the church, where could you be welcome? In other words, uh, imagine a place of hospitality, true hospitality, which means kindness and generosity and grace. That's what the church is called to be. 
according to Paul. Uh, these are the expectations that Paul gives us in Romans, and I, I hope that that's how people experience this congregation when they come. So earlier this year, the, the Pew Foundation uh, Republic, published a report on how Americans feel about various religious groups. And with regard to our group, we fall into the mainline Protestant group. Um, there's a, a good news, bad news situation. So the good news is that we have the, the lowest unfavorable rating of any Christian group. So only 10% of those surveyed had an unfavorable opinion of mainline Protestant Christianity. And I honestly think that in, in these divided times, when only 10% of those surveyed have a negative opinion of you, uh, you're doing something right, right? I mean, dessert probably has a higher unfavorability rating than 10%. The bad news is that only 30% have a favorable view of us mainline Protestants, while the rest, the vast, which is the vast majority, either have an, um, a neutral opinion or said they didn't know enough to say, <laughs> which means that we have a, a lot of work to do. Now, if we're, if we're honest about it, we know that there are churches, and maybe some of y'all have been in those churches, who do tremendous spiritual damage to people. I'm talking about churches with, with bad theology, and churches who practice kind of partisan politics uh, that denigrates those with whom they disagree. I'm talking about churches that have kind of open hostility against specific groups of people. And in my opinion, um, those churches deserve the, the high unfavorability ratings they got on this, on this survey. But it seems to me that, that if every church acted like the church Paul describes in our passage for today, we'd have a surely close to 100% favorability rating, but much more importantly, we'd be this beacon of hospitality and kindness and grace to all people. That's what God shows to us. That's what Christ came to offer. And we would be uh, a beacon of that kind of kindness and generosity and grace to those battling the great loneliness crisis of our age. They could find here uh, the connection that they so desperately need. All right, let's finish. Just a few more verses in the 12th chapter. Bless those who persecute you, Paul says. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, writing to this church that is in serious conflict, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The official mission of the United Methodist Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That's what's in our book of discipline. That's what we talk about all the time. Make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And of course, that means uh, several things. That means reaching as many different people as we can. <laughs> and when you reach lots of people, you reach lots of diverse people who might be different than what you think and do in your place. Reach them. And then it means uh, providing ministries for those 
who call this place home to, to give us the ministries that we need to continue to grow in our faith and to deepen our faith. And then because it's not all about us, it means serving our community and our world as the hands and feet of Christ. Those are the things that we do to fulfill our mission. Next week, uh, and running through the end of October, uh, we're going to be talking about the ways in which we make disciples. But today, we're asking that foundational question. We are a community of disciples who are called to make disciples and transform the world. What, what kind of community of the church, what should it be like? What does it look like? How does it act? According to the greatest apostle in Christian history, Paul, what does a, a biblical community look like? What are the marks of a true Christian community? In the, in the 12th chapter, he gives us this really long list. It's a really challenging list. He says we should be authentic. Let love be genuine. Let, we should be authentic in all of our diversity. And we should show each other mutual affection. And again, he's writing to a church that is not showing a whole lot of that to one another. And we should be hospitable to strangers, uh, intentionally inviting, intentionally inviting the newcomer into the community of the church. And we should be empathetic to the, the struggles and sufferings of others. And we should be humble servants of God, convinced that, that everyone is an essential part of the church. Um, and then Paul uses this, this wonderful phrase to capture uh, the intended ethos and culture of what the church community should look like. He says that we should outdo one another. We should outdo one another in showing honor to each other. When we, when we strive for these marks of the true Christian, we become truly the body of Christ in the world, embodying the hospitality and the kindness and the grace of the gospel, making disciples in a world that badly needs transforming. Tens of millions of Americans have not yet found this community of hospitality and kindness and grace. And people all around us, the data are clear, are lonely and suffering, needing uh, the connection that the church offers. Because connecting with this community has the power to change our lives, <laughs> change our lives and change other lives, more power than we realize. So in Paul's vision, it's a universal invitation to be here, just like Christ's universal invitation to believe in Him. You're welcome here no matter what. No matter your religious background, no matter your nationality, no matter your economic status, the big question before the United Methodist Church had been uh, about the subject of sexual uh, orientation and, and gender identity, and we have different thoughts about all that, but we are super clear that you're welcome here no matter what. You're welcome here no matter your history, no matter what you've done or left undone, no matter how sure or unsure you may be right now about this whole faith thing to which God calls us all, the God revealed in Jesus Christ wants you and me to be part of this community of hospitality and kindness and grace. That's what it should look like, and it has the power to change our lives. It always has. As I was thinking about this subject, um, I came across a, a study that I found pretty provocative. Um, the closest, the closest non-church organization that I can think of uh, 
that's analogous to what the church is intended to be actually might surprise you, <laughs> unless you have first or second hand experience with this group, in which case uh, you're immediately going to know what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a group whose slogans include wisdom like one day at a time and uh, first things first and progress, not perfection. It's an organization founded for those on the margins of society to help and to heal those whom so many others uh, disdain and judge. Alcoholics Anonymous was founded in 1935 with a singularity of purpose. Uh, to help those suffering from alcoholism to be relieved of their addiction by the power of God working in their lives. AA's mission, <laughs> sole mission, is to connect alcoholics with the God who can transform them. And in the decades since its founding, since 1935, 12-step um, groups of all kinds have arisen to help people with all kinds of addictions. And if you yourself are part of a 12-step group or if you know someone uh, who is, then you know about the power of God working through the groups and working through the steps. 12-step groups are these models of hospitality and kindness and grace for everyone who walks through the door. Someone in their very first meeting of AA is uh, encouraged and welcomed and embraced without judgment, uh, even if they still smell like alcohol from their most recent binge. And they're offered this spiritual companionship and this spiritual guidance, and they're given a, a safe place to wrestle with who they are when they show up and who they'd like to be. And all of that is in the context of a God-focused community that has the power to change lives and whose entire existence is predicated on supporting one another on the journey. And as it turns out in this uh, study that I saw this week, uh, the data shows that this approach works better than anything else humanity has tried to treat alcoholism. The study was by Stanford University's um, medical researchers, and they found that this AA model, uh, a model that's open to everyone, a model that's free, a model that has spread to 180 nations and 118,000 groups and more than 2 million members, this model is the most effective path to treating alcoholism. And theologically speaking, what we would say is that it's because it's about the power of God working through a community that is intended to change lives. Is there a better description of the church? It sounds like the church to me. A community that welcomes everyone intentionally and without judgment. A community that lives its life outdoing one another and offering hospitality and kindness and grace just like Jesus offers to every one of us. That's the, that's the biblical church that Paul calls us to be. That's the kind of church this congregation is and always has been. And for that, I give thanks to God. Amen. <laughs>